Hi, I'm Richard Niles, getting funky with another chapter in my history of pop arranging. Tonight, you can either take off your bell bottoms and get out the baby oil with the sweet soul sounds of Philadelphia, or get up uh, with the grunts and groans of the godfather himself, Mr. James Brown. Like Detroit and Memphis, Philadelphia was another American city that spawned a distinctive trend in pop music. Guitarist Bobby Eli worked with Gamble and Huff, Bobby Martin and Tom Bell, and was a linchpin of the Philly groove. He was not only there, he must have been taking notes because he also had an encyclopedic knowledge of its origins. Philadelphia has always been a hybrid of sounds emanating from various neighborhoods. South Philly gave birth to all the teen idols, such as Fabian, Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, Chubby Checker, etc. Southwest Philly was the smooth doo-wop sounds, such as Lee Andrews and the Hearts, the Superiors, groups like that. North Philly was a little harder edged. You had Howard Tate, you had Garnett Mims, you had uh, the Intruders, and West Philly was a hybrid of all the above. You know, you had Solomon Burke out of West Philly, uh, you had the Dovells, you know, which were blue-eyed soul. So you had all that put into a melting pot of a, of a big musical stew, and there you have it. It had a certain stamp that only Philadelphia had. Philly musician and arranger Bobby Martin. This was a family affair. You had all the musicians, you had the producers, also you had the studio, Sigma Sound Studio. And we had other arrangers too that were very good arrangers, but at the start, I was the arranger that did most of the work, because it wasn't until later when Philadelphia International got so big that the workload was too hard for me. They was using Tommy Bell too, because Tommy Bell was uh, always a good friend of theirs. And But I told them about uh, Jack Faith, Norman Harris, Vince Montana, Richard Rome, and Ronnie Baker, and Roland Chambers. I, t I said, all these uh, ones right here in your, your household here are good arrangers, and uh, why don't you try some of them? And uh, they did, and then uh, eventually they uh, started doing uh, arrangements on the different albums, but uh, Kenny and Huff, they always used me as the, the major arranger, and I was on the all the sides that they wanted to put out as the A-side. Bobby Martin was the main arranger for Philadelphia International. You should be a little miffed if you don't know his name, because he gave you classic, timeless hits I'm sure you'll know, like Backstabbers, The Love I Lost, Love Train, show you the way to go for the Jacksons, and you'll never find for Lou Rawls. So how did Bobby Martin fit into that Philly family? Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, they would give me uh, the song with the group singing on it, with Huff playing the piano, and sometimes you had like a little rhythm section behind it. And then I would sketch out the whole thing, sketch out the rhythm and uh, put the breaks in there and everything that he had on the, on, the, on the tape so that when we come into the studio, 
they as producers can put what they would like to on the track. He would come in with his music already done up, generally a chord chart, maybe little specific lines. You know, he didn't, there was nothing very specific. There were just little lines that, that we could expound upon, you know. So if you had an effect or maybe a, an electric sitar or wah-wah or fuzz, anything that was affected, it was me because I was affected. So it translated into my <laughs> pedals, you know. I would go in the studio with them when they was cutting the tracks, and I would conduct everything. And I was there to make sure that the tempo didn't run away. I'd try to keep it right in the pocket. What they do, they shout in your face. 98% of the time, the rhythm section was done first. Stan Watson uh, wanted to try to, to do everything live and see what it sounded like so you could hear all the room spill and it created another kind of character to the record. So we had to uh, set up a studio in a different manner at that time, but it was great. I mean, everybody in that room, and it wasn't a giant room. I mean, it wasn't tiny, but it wasn't big, like let's say a Columbia or RCA or any kind of like sound stage studio that was set up especially for an orchestra, but it worked. It worked just fine, Mr. Eli, and if any of today's producers who obsess about having the latest technology are listening, all they needed to have hits were a great song, a great singer, and a great arrangement. Record buyers still couldn't care less about room spill. usually writes a score, a large piece of paper, literally a chart of all the parts for the whole orchestra. This is what you sometimes see a conductor glancing at when he's showing off in front of an orchestra. Bobby Martin had a rather unorthodox approach to arranging, not only dispensing with the score, but writing his music on the move. When I used to uh, do arrangements, I used to didn't use scores. I would translate everything right from my head and put it right on the single sheet of paper for the musicians. And I thought that the score was like a waste of time. And I used to do my arrangements on the freeway. And I don't advise anybody to try to do that. But I had a method because I was late for the sessions because I was so loaded down with uh, work. And uh, if a car is about a mile behind me, I could write a whole lot of music before he catch me. You know, or at a red light. I just loved red lights. It seems like the ones that you write so quick uh, are songs that become hits because it's so simple. Well, this particular tune I was writing, it wasn't called a horse, it was called uh, something else. And they used a singer on the A side, but on, on the B side, they would take the voice off of the tracks and just leave the tracks there and use it as a B side. Well, when the disc jockeys played the song, they didn't like the A side. And one of the disc jockeys turned it over on the B-side and started playing it, 
and all the lights start flashing in the studio, people calling up about it. At that time, uh, the disc jockey called me up. He said, he said, Bobby Martin, he said, you got a smash. I said, what is it? I don't, have, I, don't, I don't know what it is. What is it? He said, it's a song called A Horse. And uh, I said, I never did a song called A Horse. He said, listen to this. Because he was on there, and he's jumping up and down, you know how disc jockeys do. Come on, baby, you know, whatever, you know. Come on, the horse, and so and so and so and so and so. And then, and I said, hey, that is my, that's my music. And then <laughs> after he finished playing, I said, yeah, that is my music. And I said, is my name on there? He said, yeah, your name is on there as a ranger. I said, well, isn't my name on there as the, as the writer? Because they took the voice off and just used the track. I think that song sold two million copies. Once again, the arranger gets shafted. But this demonstrates an interesting point. Arrangers compose original melodies to enhance songs. Those melodies are sometimes significant. Should they have credit as co-writers? Luckily, Bobby Martin let it pass, but Bobby Eli remembered another session he might have called the saddest day of his life. This has got to be the saddest day of my life. I called you here today for a bit of bad news. On the session that produced Kiss and Say Goodbye by the Manhattans, we're sitting downstairs in Studio 2 of Sigma Sound, and he... Bobby Martin had a drumstick in his hand, and he would he would use a drumstick as a baton to like you know, egg the musicians on, count off and whatever, and and all of a sudden he poked himself in the eye with a drumstick as he was counting off. So if you could picture the beginning of Kiss and Say Goodbye when Blue says, "This is the saddest day of my life," and you hear me with my little guitar sounding like Chet Atkins right before that, the count off. Imagine Bobby Martin poking himself in the eye with a drumstick. So, you know, that actually made us feel good. It actually, I guess, gave us a little zing for the track. So it was like 11 o'clock in the morning, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, we had to have a little bit of energy after our cups of coffee. Let's just kiss. <laughs> I don't remember, but a lot of things went on in the studio. <laughs> Another memorable day in the studio was the recording of Me and Mrs. Jones. Bobby Martin explains how he tailored the arrangement to the lyrical content of the song, which concerned an extramarital affair. Me and Mrs. Jones We got a thing Well, I did it on a, because it was an adult type of a song. It wouldn't sound right with a, a couple of horns or three three horns or something like that. I used a big band on that, and then, uh, as you can uh, hear in the in the sax section in the introduction, I put a thing on there, like the song "Once I Had a Secret Love." You, I put the melody, one of the saxophones, I had him had him play that. And also, the strings that just had that big adult sound. I used the strings based on what Huff was playing on the piano. Made those strings sing. And uh, the horns and everything, it just sounded so great. 
I guess coming from his jazz background, you could always tell his arrangements by the use of his horn punctuations. For instance, Love is a Message, you had this horn thing going, uh, da-da, 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 da-da. That was indigenous of that Bobby Martin slash Philadelphia sound that a lot of other arrangers were influenced by that sort of pattern. If you really think back, you'll note that a lot of Philly records had that. I did it as well. I guess I'm a thief too. What can I tell you? <laughs> Another young man who became a classic Philly arranger and producer was Tom Bell. Best known for his work with the Delphonics, the Stylistics, and the Detroit Spinners, he went on to work with Elton John, Denise Williams, and Johnny Mathis. As Bobby Eli remembers, Tom was always a sophisticated perfectionist. Tom was very, very adamant. He would write all the notes out, everything. I mean, even drum music. One day when Earl Young was doing uh, a Delphonics record, Earl was actually just starting to get into reading music because he wasn't really, a lot of us at that time weren't really that adept at actually reading notes per se. A fly landed on Earl's music paper and Earl read the fly <laughs> thinking that it was an eighth note. So Tom looked around I me, mean, Tom had ears everywhere, you know, he could pick out I don't even want to say, I mean, he could hear whatever, you know. And he, he heard a certain note that wasn't on the music, and that was Earl hitting the fly that was on the music paper as one of the notes. So Tom was very adamant on having his arrangements just so. Right around the time that he produced the Delphonics on Didn't I Blow Your Mind, he met a young, little young Jewish girl from a German town called Linda Creed. Linda Creed was the vocalist of a group called Soul Brothers LTD, who were a little uh, funk jazz bar band out of Norristown. And uh, Linda was, was the vocalist, and she dabbled in, uh, you know, more than dabbled, she was one heck of a lyric writer, probably one of the best to ever come out of Philadelphia. Someone introduced her to Tom, and they started collaborating on songs, and their, uh, their marriage was like uh, marriage, musical marriage, was just magic. It was just a magic uh, made in heaven, man. It was just wonderful. The very first song that was recorded by the team of Bell and Creed was a song called I Want to Be a Free Girl by Dusty Springfield on the uh, Dusty in Philadelphia album. And I was there, and the, the elation 
that Linda felt in the studio after hearing that that playback, man, I could see her now just waltzing waltzing around the studio, man, just elated to hear that song coming over the speakers. It was it was wonderful, man. Tom Bell to me was the consummate musician's musician. A musician's musician, and he's still going strong today. If, as the great Fred Wesley said, Philadelphia was funk with a bow tie, then Mr. James Brown must be soul with an electrified pelvis. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like a, like a sex machine, man. Moving, doing it, you know. Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. He is the architect of a style of music that makes you want to dance, sing, and reproduce. It's also a highly sophisticated, complex genre of music. Mr. James Brown is not only an innovator, but a man who has influenced innovators. Miles Davis modeled his bands of the late 60s after him. Prince used his grooves, and Michael Jackson hid backstage at the Apollo Theater, cataloging his dance steps. He's not only the godfather of soul, but also the founding father of funk. He was rapping in Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud before today's rappers were born. And if you ask me, doing it a great deal more eloquently without resorting to profanity or misogyny. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. His ideas and those of his great arrangers Pee Wee Ellis and Fred Wesley led to the invention of a new style, a fusion of blues, jazz, and soul, creating a jittering jigsaw puzzle of interlocking rhythms as infectious as bubonic plague. Motown expert, Harry Weinger. James from the beginning had a band. The first instrumental single by the James Brown band was Hold It, James Brown and his band, big capital letters. James was always one of the guys. He was almost like another musician, even though it was only grunts or hand gestures. Or Sinclair Pinckney, the sadly departed Sinclair Pinckney, told me that when Lewis Hamlin came in the band, Lewis Hamlin was a trumpet player, he was the first guy to start writing things down. James would say, I have this idea. Hamlin would write it out for the band, rehearse the band in the basement. Mr. Brown, we're ready for you now. Before he died, he said, uh, when James heard me arrange something, he stood up and he said, oh my goodness, that's what I want. And then began thinking about how could I have a real band. Sammy Lowe was the guy who did the Platters and Little Peggy March and Sam Cooke. And you look on the record, it says arranged by Sammy Lowe, or sometimes it didn't even have his name on the record and you knew it was Sammy Lowe. He was the guy who could balance that sandpaper of James Brown with pillows. You see? Noah made the ark. This is a man's, man's 
Sammy Lowe played a vital role in the early James Brown sound. His string arrangement on It's a Man's 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 World was revolutionary and made me want to write for strings the very first time I heard it. The man who really put the funk into the mix was sax player Pee Wee Ellis. The first time I met James Brown was years before I joined the band. I was uh, playing with a, a trio in Florida, and the band came through after playing a gig in Miami. They were back, going back north, and stopped in this little motel where I was, where I was playing. Uh, nothing personal, but I didn't have any idea who James Brown was <laughs> at the time. This was the early 60s, and three years later, I got this call from Wayman Reed, who was a good friend of mine, who had joined James Brown's band, and uh, asked me if I wanted a gig. I, uh, I said, okay. I wasn't doing anything much, so I agreed to join the band. So I, I flew to uh, Washington, D.C., and met the band at this theater. I had to stay on the sidelines for about a week, watching the band. The routines and uh, how the band was uh, so tight, going from one thing to the next without taking a breath. You know? <laughs> I couldn't believe what they were doing. So the normal procedure was to uh, anybody come in new would have to sit in the wings and watch for about a week. Pee-wee had been hired and was watching the band and been, was the great sax player kind of in the background and was beginning to do things for Nat. Nat could make a gig, Nat needed somebody to write the charts after the arrangement Pee-wee was the cat. And one night Nat left or got fired in the middle of a Latin casino gig and Pee-wee steps up and before you know it he's writing Cold Sweat and he's writing I Got the Feeling and he's writing Say Loud I'm Black and I'm Proud. Extraordinary. As I um, you know, got more and more ensconced in the band, in the infrastructure, I, I realized that James Brown was um, a master of rhythm, and I wasn't. And he also had some unorthodox ideas about theory and how things went together, which I fought tooth and nail for a while. <laughs> but uh, I got over it, kicking and screaming all the way, but. Eventually, I realized that theory was uh, one thing, and what felt good, what sounded good, was another thing. Mm. If it feels good, do it. So I started doing it. He said his job was really to translate James Brown's head movements, shoulder movements, into something the band could play. You know, Cold Sweat was James Brown calling him aside and saying, we're cutting tomorrow, here's what I want to do. Make something out of that. 
And that became the baseline, you know, some piece of cold sweat. So Peter wrote something brilliant, all in sync, all in rhythm, parts for everybody, open solo, you know, open space for some soloing. James came in and said, no, 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 no. You know, even though you've got this arranger, right, he's written something, it still comes down to James Brown. Everyone will tell you that. Fred, Macy, everybody who's pissed at him, everybody who loves him will tell you. It comes down to James. He's the leader. James Brown turned around and said, no, no, I want the guitar kind of going against the rhythm. People said, you can't do that. So no, no, that's what I want. And Pee-wee just raised one eyebrow and said, man, he was right. That's what made the record. My part in it was the musical part. James Brown wrote the words, and it gave me the idea for the bass line with some just some grunts and groans after after a gig one night in the dressing room. He called me in and I grunted out a rhythm, which I proceeded to the bus to the next town. In the back of the bus, I wrote this song called "Cold Sweat." Mm. The horn line came from. Um, uh, Miles Davis is so what? I remember one day listening to Cold Sweat, having been also obsessing over Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. And I'm listening to Cold Sweat. Da -da. And I'm singing along, so what? So when I met Pee Wee Ellis, I said, hey, hey Pee Wee, uh, you know, I'm, did you do that? <laughs> I said, I'm hearing, so what? And he looked at me and he goes, you heard that? He goes, yeah, I put some miles in there. That's just extraordinary. very much in control. He's actually the band leader. He leads the band from the time he's on stage to the time he leaves. And sometimes after it was and before. It's very effective. I mean, and it's comforting, in fact, to be on stage with him because he, he, he's so much in control, you feel safe. As long as you stay awake and alert and watch him. <laughs> because if you miss something, it costs you money. <laughs> First, one of the first things he do is he looks around at the band, see if everybody's dressed properly, shoes shine, no wrinkles in your clothes and uniform. If you don't have your shoes shine, it might cost you twenty-five dollars. If you miss a cue, it could cost you more, depending on the severity of it. As he's performing, flashes his fingers towards whoever the offender is, and there's someone on the sidelines taking notes. <laughs> It was a hell of an experience. I mean, it was very much an education, a lot of fun, and I got a lot of things done that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise, like having that, that whole machine to work with. And what a machine. Trombonist Fred Wesley took over the arranging duties and contributed classics like Get on the Good Foot, 
Sex Machine, and The Payback. The J.B. Horns created a sound that continues to influence all horn players and arrangers. Next week, I'll be in the company of music giants Richard Carpenter, Barry Manilow, Jimmy Haskell, and Arif Mardin. But for tonight, it's thanks to Philly's finest bobbies, Mr. Martin and Mr. Eli, to Harry Weinger, and to Pee Wee Ellis. Thanks, too, to my producer, Elizabeth Clark, who keeps me in a constant cold sweat. That means I must be Richard Niles, so I suggest you join me same time next week on BBC Radio 2 for my History of Popperin. Radio Richard. Like, share, subscribe, even donate. Radio Richard. Be informed. Be amazed. Be inspired.